Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm your host Sean Merwin here with none other than Alpha Stream himself, Teos Abadia. Hey Teos. Uh hello my friend Sean. We are post Turkey. I'm excited to to be back home. I was in the desert living the dark sun life except without all the bad stuff, which is to say not living the dark right. sun life. And air conditioning. They they don't have air conditioning in Dark Sun, last I checked. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, this was yeah. like almost, well, it was like 74 degrees or something, and uh, oh. which was, you know, quite lovely. So we didn't need any air conditioning either, but it was just, it was not the 40 yeah. degrees that I have in Oregon. So that was really nice. Right. As I say, for, for the desert where you were, 74 degrees is downright frigid. Yes. People were wearing jackets. They were very I'm sure cold. there were. <laughs> yep, I bet. I bet. Yeah. So, tell me about this little bit of news here that that the player's handbook, the Five E Player's handbook, hit number seventeen on the is it the Amazon all, all yeah. books? Uh, yeah. Okay. Dave Rogers was saying that uh, uh, via I think it was maybe on Mastodon that the Five E Player's handbook hit number seventeen out of all books on Amazon uh, Thursday of last week due to a, this huge discount that happened for sort of a Black Friday type thing. Um, and, and lots of books were just uh, unbelievably low in, in cost. And um, mm. so I think that led to this resurgence. But it's like, wow, even with sales, it's kind of hard to believe that it, it would be at that level, right? Just incredible. Yeah, this, this late in its life cycle, uh, that mm. is pretty impressive. It shows that there's still a market out there an audience out there for the very first book from D&D 5e incredible and makes you question whether we need a new edition or not <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that uh -huh. a little more later so lots of great questions and comments coming from the tweet bag patreon missive uh youtube extravaganza so, so let's uh, take them one at a time here, although two of them are sort of related. Um, the first comes via Patreon from Seth Eckel, who says, if one D&D truly intends to, on being backwards compatible, does the default setting need to remain the Forgotten Realms? Mm -hmm. What do you think the likelihood is that Watsi changes the default setting for the new version of the game? Could be good for selling books. Uh, if not the Forgotten Realms, what do you think some options for a new default setting could be uh i i think the first thing we need to answer is does backwards combat compatibility have anything to do with this the setting and the answer is not really uh, unless the setting is something really strange and different from your normal medieval sword and sorcery sort of fantasy then the rules are the rules and the setting is the setting and while one does affect the other it doesn't affect it enough to to bother with that yeah now in turn like for example if you have aberron as your default setting you need to then think about dragon marks and you need to think about warforged and you need mm -hmm. to make the make rules that fit those but any rule could fit those you don't have to make special rules for that they did it with feats and they did it with yeah. uh, races and subclasses or sub races so that, that's all yeah. good now, I want to get your opinion, Teos, on what do you think they will do in terms of a default setting? Yeah, well, you know, I just finished Ben Riggs' book on um, uh, slaying the dragon. Is that the name of it? 
Yep, slaying the dragon. Yeah, and and you know we you had been on the show during week that I was gone, and so I finally finished it over break. And one of the things they they look into or he looks into is setting and the concept of what setting sold well, and and sort of how was the company operating around that. And the most fascinating part of it is that only the most top managers seemed to know at all what was going on, and really probably only the head of TSR, Lorraine Williams, knew what was going on at all. To the point that the designers were creating things like Planescape that are seen as amazing settings and were never making money. And so, mm-hmm. it and, and of course, fans, I mean, one of the things I think about when I read that book is that as a fan, whether it was like an 84-ish when it was sort of, to me, was like this brand new game that I was loving. And that's really when it was starting its decline. Or whether it was in the 90s when I thought everything was just lovely and it was falling apart and I had no idea, right? The fans can be completely disconnected from the reality of the game. The designers can be disconnected from the financial reality of the game as well. And so it can be really hard to know what should the setting be, what is successful about a particular setting. And Ben looks at how you know Forgotten Realms is being outsold by other settings like, like Dragonlance or other types of just basic products. And in fact, at one point, uh, Wizards of the Coast, when they first bought D&D, tried... Uh, a, a sort of very similar products, two very similar products, one branded as Forgotten Realms and one not, and the generic one outsold, right? But fast right. forward to 5e, I think that the reliance on the Sword Coast, as tiring as it might be for those of us who are a little more hardcore, has actually been quite successful because it creates this sort of common language. But there's a lot riding on it, right? It's complicated. It's not one thing or another. Um, but But I think that it's hard to predict really i'm saying a lot of things but it is hard to know what is really resonating with people and i don't know that we've seen any clear indications that say as the company launches uh the various magic the gathering settings or eberron or uh spelljammer that those have truly resonated you know broad been a, a a beachhead for new players anything like that. i've not seen any of that they seem successful to me. What do I know? But I, I don't see sort of a giant surge of it. So in lieu of that, I guess Forgotten Realms sounds great. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. You know, it, the, the short version is you do, if you have new players coming, they, they're not going to know what the Forgotten Realms is. Mm-hmm. So they don't care. Right. It's all new. So it's wonderful. Do, you, do, do whatever you want. But for existing players, it's more likely that you will have people upset that you don't use Forgotten Realms than upset that you do use Forgotten Realms. So with that segment of the audience to to think about, you're probably best off just doing it. Now, you don't have to do it heavily. You don't have to do Mm -hmm. it deeply. And you don't even have to make it... um, that noticeable right yeah. you don't have to say the default setting of D is the forgotten realms but when you give examples you can use the forgotten realms mm-hmm. and that way it makes it easier for you to slide something in um and make it work with your core game mm-hmm. uh than having to remove pieces to make it work with another setting yeah. so 
I think the Forgotten Realms is generic enough in terms of a setting and popular enough in terms of a setting. And now there's a D&D movie that is going to be set in that setting. Yeah. So you sort of want to keep that sort of uh, yeah. keep that sort of flow going, I would say. I think the biggest thing is whatever any, setting. Any other thoughts? Yeah, just whatever setting you're going to choose, have a strategy around how that is bringing people in and retaining them. And if the answer is many settings, same mm-hmm. thing, right? But whatever you choose, that needs to, to, to have a strategy behind it. And I think that's maybe what I see most of what failed at TSR um, and just keep measuring, right? But one hopes that they're doing that. Yep. Uh, another similar question from Twitter from Chappie Thoughts. Do you think Wizards is hamstringing its designers by insisting that one D&D be backwards compatible? So two things here. One, we can't be 100% sure that Wizards is insisting to its developers that 1D&D be backward compatible. Mm-hmm. They could say it's going to be backwards compatible to us as marketing talk, as PR talk. But in reality, they could be telling their designers, do whatever you want. Right. Uh, don't worry about compatibility. And now... If they do insist on backward compatibility, is that hamstringing the designers? Yes and no, because designers are going to be hamstrung by something. There will always be design goals. Um, They they could be very strong design goals that are shoved in, in the designer's faces, or they could be sort of, you know, more mild design goals, but there's always something. And limitations aren't necessarily bad either. Limitations can help you focus design choices, whereas you might wander otherwise or throw too many options out there. A a limitation, uh, rather than hamstringing you, can actually focus you. So I think the designers are going to be just fine no matter what. I think they're going to be given enough room to do do what they want. Um, But you and I have both worked for companies both game design and just regular corporate world uh, companies. And there's always something in the background that's, that's pushing you. That's bringing to bear its own sort of weight that you have to take into account as you do your work. Along those lines, the biggest thing is having some clarity when you're inside the building, right? So if you're a designer, a developer, an editor that you know, what that goal is right like and 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 that we understand that or that we know which parts of it are still in play and being discussed right that is important because i need to know whether say monster crs are changing or whether that whole, whether there will be no more cr right like if i don't know that how can i design around that right and, and so those are the kind of things that we need to understand right if the framework like for example it sure seems like feats are coming in at first level i I, as a customer, would like that to still be in play. As a designer, I need to know whether yeah. that is in play or whether it is fixed and we are designing upon it because then I'll build upon that appropriately, right? And, and as a job, I would be fine either way, right? Because as a job, a designer is interested by what you're constructing and you know you base, based off of those parameters that exist, so if it's feats at first level, so be it. Whereas I might be going... I don't want them at first level because <laughs> right. I'm a customer. Right. Or something like if you have feats that mimic 
powers or abilities that that classes get you either want to play into that and just say at first level you also get this feat which which then other people could take if they wanted even though they're not a fighter or a wizard or whatever or you have to differentiate that ability from a feat that's going to be somewhat similar but not quite so yeah that's another thing that using feats as an example you need to know yeah. Uh, relatively soon how they're going to be used yeah and, and like for example if i was told feats will be there at first level there's no two ways about it i might think cool how can i make the feats at first level approachable so that they aren't a burden mm-hmm. or right. as less less you know the least yeah. burden possible right yeah good question yeah all right and another question from eric commander via youtube uh, after listening to your commentary on useful backgrounds, it occurs to me that it would be beneficial for written adventures to identify and summarize early on what background, background features, or maybe even skills might be of particular particular use throughout the adventures. This would be beyond the more common pre-generated characters or character secrets included in many published adventures. Have you ever seen this done? Absolutely. Um, we did it in the Oracle of War Adventures League campaign. In in the campaign document, we suggested some new backgrounds or suggested some existing backgrounds that you might want to use for your characters. We created a few of our own. And then at the start of each adventure, we would say, pay attention to see if any of your characters have background X. And if they do, here's some information that they're going to find out during the adventure. Mm-hmm. Here's some benefit that they might call upon you know, based on that background during the adventure. And we tried to do that at least early in the campaign. We tried to do that for each adventure, something different uh, for each adventure and for each background. So yes, it has been done and it's not terribly difficult to do as long as you limit the number of backgrounds that the characters and the players have at their disposal. If you can limit that and say, choose from these 10 backgrounds, even creating your own for your own campaigns, that lets you then pull them in and and use them uh, to a better extent than if they have to choose, if the players have to choose from 100 mm-hmm. backgrounds, because then it's much harder to do that. Yeah, agreed. I, I loved what Oracle of War did. Um, two quick thoughts on this. One is that that when I try to do something like this in a campaign, or let's say when I, when 5e first started, I would try to do things like, okay, I'm going to use all the backgrounds. Uh, you know, let me write down whatever character's background is, all six players. Uh, let me write down their ideals and their bonds and all these things. And then I found I was quickly overwhelmed and I couldn't feed off of it. And an adventure has the same problem. If it tries to say, like, here's how to use all the backgrounds in the in, in 5e, right? <laughs> like, that's a lot. Um and and yeah. so what I ended up doing as a DM was to say instead, hey, I'm running a campaign. In any given session of a campaign, I'm going to focus a spotlight on one or two characters. So I'm going to look through the list of characters. Who have I not put the spotlight on recently? I'm going to choose them. What do I know about those characters? You know, all this is before play when I'm prepping. Okay, those two, um, you know, they have this background and that ideal. Oh, I'm going to play off of the, this person's background, that person's ideal. Here we go, right? Um mm-hmm back to that adventure writing standpoint my second thought is looking at the new dragonlance book uh i noticed that and we saw this during the ua they have super fleshed out backgrounds if you're a knight of salamia if you are a um 
uh, sorcerer, uh, high mage, right of the the tower. What, what do you call it? High mage sorcerer, something like that. Um, yeah. Tower of high sorcery. There we go. Mages of the tower, of high sorcery. So if if you are those things, you get a really cool background that's super tied into the story. You get feats that further reinforce this. So like double layers of cool stuff. And if you're not, it's like, hey, just take a feat to make up for it. Here's you know skilled or something really simple and that to me is an enormous letdown structurally what that adventure is doing there i like i love a lot of other aspects about the adventure so i'm not you know saying don't get the adventure the adventure is great but in that particular part i would like them to have done some work around the other backgrounds and how to bring them to life in fact i would have liked them to include specific backgrounds for dragonlance because i think that setting deserves that mm -hmm. very true all right, so thank you for those questions and comments. And you can always hit us up on any of our social media, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Patreon, to ask those questions. But now we will dive into our news and commentary. And our first bit of news is one that we've been waiting for, kind of. <laughs> so Wizards of the Coast has clarified, with air quotes, their OGL stance for 1D&D. &D. Um, so last time we talked about rumors regarding the OGL and SRD for 1D&D. Well, comicbook.com took the step of reaching out to Wizards of the Coast and asking them. We've heard these rumors. What, what do you have to say? And Wizards of the Coast came back with this following statement. Quote, we will continue to support the thousands of creators making third-party D&D content with the release of 1D&D in 2024. While it is certain our open gaming license will continue to evolve, just as it has since its inception, we are too early in the development of 1D&D to give more specifics on the open gaming license or system reference document at this time. Mm. So three sentences. Uh, sentence one says, yes, we're going to support people in creating their own content. A lot of people read that and said, oh, whew. oh, we're <laughs> safe. They're going to support us, and we're going to be able to do exactly what we were, we've been doing. Um, no, that's not what they said. <laughs> they could take away the open gaming license completely and still say that people can create their own stuff. They just can't release it. Well, and, it, and, and right? to clarify, so they could take a, away the... They, they could... They could choose for the next edition not to support the SRD, right? Because you can't really end the open game right. license. Yeah. Co correct. Correct. Uh, so the second sentence is the open gaming license will continue to evolve. Mm. So that specifically is saying it's not going to be the same as it was. Uh, yeah. So expect some differences. And, uh, Actually, there's only two sentences then, because yeah. that one has lots of commas. And then they say it's too early to say anything about anything at this time. Yeah. So uh, thoughts on that, Teos? Well, so I mean, the first is just that they were willing to answer it is good. Uh, it suggests that they were attuned to the conversation enough to recognize, okay, you know, people are creating attention-getting videos on YouTube and, you know, creating firestorms on social media. We should probably say something. And so as things to say go, you know, this was fine because they probably don't know, right? I mean, 
the 5e srd was sort of done at the last minute as well right um and so just to clarify so the ogl is the, the license to to write for dnd um and create your own content when that was created uh there's two minor versions of it but but neither leaves they, they are there forever they're perpetual and can't be revoked uh now new licenses could be offered so you could have a new version of the ogl which would be an option to use that instead of the other uh and and there might be reasons why that's attractive so whatever that evolution of the ogl may be the others will remain right it can't they can't go away but there may be reasons why you want to switch um, the, so for example, if, if there was no new OGL, but they simply said, Hey, uh, creators can now write for D and D beyond, uh, your work will be searchable, findable, integratable on D and D beyond, but here are all, here's what comes with that. And you may like that or not like that. Mm -hmm. And as a third party company, you may like that or not like that, but now there would be the sudden market shift to consider the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. And because the D&D Beyond platform would be attractive and maybe integration to virtual tabletop, that whole walled garden discussion, this could all be a big thing. Um, similarly, the SRD. So the SRD is what tells you that you can use uh, the fighter class, but it doesn't have the artificer, so you can't use the artificer class. Is Wizards going to sue you if you write up an artificer thing? Probably not if you're relatively small. But if you were, um, you know, if Cobalt Press were to start doing that, I think they'd have a conversation with them and say, hey, that's not on the SRD, right? And so it's something that, that, that wizards can defend because they're choosing to say, here are the elements you can use from our rules when you create open gaming content. And the more that the edition changes from 5e to 5.5 to 6e, whatever we end up getting in 2024, whether there's an SRD dictates whether you can use it. And, and also how aggressive Wizards decides to be in defending it, right? So, so there's kind of multiple levels where this clarification doesn't really give us an answer. And there's still reason to worry because 4th edition did not have a new OGL or a new system reference document. And no one really published for it. Very few people published for it third party. Why? because it was seen as too different to try to get away with writing for it and not draw the ire of Wizards of the Coast, right? And then as time went on, the character builder and all of these other features for 4th edition were so robust that you really didn't feel you could make a dent into that, um, into the customer base and pull them over to your side. Yep. Yeah, and I'm sure this is a topic that we will continue to come back mm -hmm. to uh, because it's very near and dear to not only our hearts, but our wallets as yeah. we are game designers yeah. uh, who make a living in my case or or partial living in your case uh, using this open gaming license to create content. So, And, and for me, the bottom uh, line, to, Sean, to keep an eye on. the bottom line for me is, you know, we would all hope that Wizards sees the benefit of third parties creating what it does to make the game bigger broader more relatable you know to find more people out there to create energy all that to create success for them right and also for others which mm -hmm. is is great um and that's really what it comes down to because ogl srd technicalities aside 
in the end, there are ways that wizards can mess with that, which would probably be to their detriment. Mm -hmm. But do they see it? We're not sure, right? Hopefully this message means they right. see it enough to be careful about it and, and keep it being a vibrant interaction yeah. between creators and official company. And will there be a difference between people that create their five-page PDFs to put up on the DMs Guild versus Cobalt Press and yeah. MCDM and larger companies that you know make million-dollar Kickstarters yeah. or you know make big, large products using the open gaming license? And will there be a differentiation? That's also yeah. something to keep an eye on. Yeah, like, you know, imagine Cobalt Press, right, has all those Tome of Beasts that are so super awesome. Uh, and they are all based on the SRD structure around monsters. If Wizards were to change that substantially enough, could customers decide, well, I don't want the old versions. So Cobalt Press, make me new ones, to which Cobalt Press would say, I've got a warehouse with books in it. What do you want me to do with those? Burn them? <laughs> like, I want to sell them. <laughs> I want to yeah. make money, make my money back on them. And so, you know, do I republish them, but some people won't buy them because they already own them? You know, so just those are the kind of things that really hurt from third edition to 3.5 edition. So there are a lot of, you know, 6E is going to be different than 5E, uh, regardless of how compatible it is. It, it'll be its own story around the OGL, and it's going to be fascinating to watch. <laughs> oh, yes. And terrifying for some of us. Mm-hmm. Hey, we have Lego D&D design finalists. They had more than 620 entries and they chose five finalists. So there is now an open fan vote to decide which will be made. And you have until December 12th to put in your vote. Uh, link in the show notes for that. Did you take a look at what the finalists were? I did. I mean, there are like classic monsters popping out of a book. There's xanathar in his study a mimic that shifts from treasure chest to mimic uh, tiamat around a dice tower of a castle there's a dragon wrapped around a kind of castle and, and building i mean these are all really cool and, and yeah i'm gonna vote later today i'm excited to see that right, uh, and so you have a link in the show notes or you could just yeah to... yeah link in the show notes right. and you have voting until december 12th and I believe they choose just one of them, but they they might choose more. They use this as a way to, they say, to gauge interest. So if, you know, nobody's clicking on one of them, well, there's not a lot of interest there for a product. So so we'll see. Who, maybe there'll be multiples that are created. Um, this dragon wrap around the tower is really impressive. So, yeah, neat stuff. I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I wish my kids were younger so I could have tried this all out. <laughs> <laughs> they said they had 620 submissions which is amazing that's really good yeah that's good that is that's great and going from one toy brand to one big game brand we go from legos to trivial pursuit comicbook.com is reporting that trivial pursuit the dungeons and dragons ultimate edition uh, is a new version of trivial pursuit that tests the player's knowledge in game lore history of the game and rules of the game Six categories include magic and miscellany, history, monsters, dungeons and adventures, characters, and cosmology, with questions pulled from all five editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Player pieces take the form of iconic monsters like beholders, mind flayers, and mimics, selling for $45. Uh, there is a trailer on YouTube where you can take a look 
or you can go to comicbook.com to see the story. Any thoughts? Um, fantastic. Sign me up. The only problem is I don't have people who will want to play with me at home. So I need to play this with yeah. the nerds in my life uh, rather than my lovely family. I'll win. Hey, I mean, perfect game for when you don't have you don't have your whole party show up. It's like, okay, <laughs> let's pull out Dungeons yeah. and Dragons and see who the real rules lawyer is here. <laughs> yeah. I want to see this actually played uh, as a stream, you know, where, where you just see uh, like a death match, right, of, of knowledge nerds. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Uh, we Now's the time of year where we get the year in review uh, articles and blogs from different places and mongoose publishing who does one every year has set theirs out um, mongoose publishing is celebrating its 21st year in business shared on its blog how the year has gone um, you you read this so i'm gonna let you yeah. take over from here i mean it, it's you know i was thinking like oh they're gonna say like what products are coming out and they do that but they talk about the radical changes they're making to their company uh with the ultimate goal being that this is a company that becomes employee owned and employee led. And, and it's neat. I mean, I think anyone in a company should look at this because it's full of just ideas that show you, Hey, you know, blow the roof off on what you think the constraints are for how your RPG company can be set up. Um, they have started to do all these steps, slowly gathering momentum where staff get together to decide, Hey, what are the projects we're taking on as a company? Who should lead those projects? You know, who wants to do it? You know, who do you think would be good at doing this? What should the production schedule be? These are all things that usually managers put together, right? And so here it's everybody in the staff gets to do this. Uh, they get to decide on what they work on and when, right? So imagine you just telling your boss, I'm going to work on the following project, you know, not this other thing. Uh, staff all receive training on the way the entire company runs from receiving orders, customer support, uh, financial management. So that they're intelligent enough to think about all the different uh, parts of the company and, and what they do. They receive, uh, they take turns reviewing bank financials and running payroll, predicting revenue and understanding company health. They decide how to spend money. So they built this like gorgeous looking kitchen. Uh, and one person volunteered to be as their job, the in-house executive chef so that everybody can have healthy kind of home cooked style meals every day. The staff decide, decides together on things about where to apply money, and they're learning how to run the company so it can become employee-owned and led. Uh, the, the CEO talks about how, or president talked about how they kind of sat back for a while and let the staff just run things to kind of get experience at this. It's really cool. And then they talk about, you know, here, here we are working on Paranoia and Shield Maidens and Traveler and so on. And it looks to the future with, with you know, future uh, improvements that'll keep coming as the company operates but I, I just thought that was absolutely fascinating read uh mt black shared that with us yeah oh cool yeah i i worked as a freelance editor for them a long time ago uh matthew sprang i think strange uh is the mm -hmm. is the ceo or president and uh it's located in england mm -hmm. which may you know affect the way that, that they decide to run things yeah. but still interesting to see how how a game company in a really niche uh market can find its way to success hopefully to success or continuing success through through running things a little bit differently yeah 
the Dice Breaker Tabletop Awards were uh, announcing their finalists. Mm -hmm. So some of the categories are Best RPG, Designer of the Year, Publisher of the Year, Rising Star Designer, and Rising Star Publisher. Um, Best RPG includes the nominees Avatar Legends, Coyote and Crow, Iron Sworn, Starforged, and the One Ring Second Edition. Uh, you want to read some of the other categories yeah. here? Designer of the Year uh, includes Banana Chan and Jian Shim. Um, they've got great games and are in, and, and it's worth saying some of these awards are for uh, like board games and card games and things. So not everything is RPG. Uh, Publisher of the Year includes Free League Publishing. Rising Star Designer includes Mario Otegon, who was on our show. Congrats, Mario. Um, and some other really good people. Publishers include Coyote and Crow for, for Rising Star. So pretty neat. You know, as we said before, when we covered uh, the first round of it, um, it's not a, a necessarily perfect award right now, but they're clearly trying to learn from the process. Um, and the fan publisher is still something that you can vote on currently. And there's a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Winter Fantasy is right around the corner, uh, February 2nd through 6th in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the hotel block is now open if you would like to mm. grab your hotel room. I did that. And there you can't sign up for events yet, but they have event overviews available, which will include a new Dragonlance campaign, a new Moonshade Isles campaign. Uh, the... Uh, it's not written here. I'm trying to remember it. It's the AL campaign that sprung from the Red Wizards. Dreams of the Red Wizards. Dreams of the Red Wizards, yep. 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 And, and then have, a new uh, D&D experience track. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. I, I always love this convention. I'm still looking at what I can do work-wise, but I would love to go there if I can. Well, in that case, I'm not going. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will be there four. possibly running some, uh, yes, I will be there possibly running some stuff from Ghostfire Gaming. I was trying to remember the company that I actually work for there. Uh, uh -huh. Some Ghostfire Gaming awesome. stuff. So, Well, if I go, I will for sure yeah. DM a bunch because that, that's a con where I really like to, to DM a lot. Um, so if I go, that's, mm -hmm. I'll do that. And speaking of games that I see at Winter Fantasy from time to time, Esper Genesis which is the awesome sci-fi game using the 5e engine uh, created by Rich Lescaflair, who's just unbelievably talented. Uh, they have launched a community content program called Starforgers Guild. So it's like DMs Guild or any of these other uh, Cthulhu uh, in, in Miskatonic University or whatever it's called on, on DriveThruRPG. There are a number of these that exist, and there is now on the Starforgers Guild that lets you create for Esper Genesis, and, and so there are rules there. We've got a link in the show notes so you can learn how to become a creator for that. Yep, and all of that is hosted on DriveThruRPG. And someone who we talk about a bit on the show, Elven Tower, has a free adventure. Elven Tower is a map maker and adventure writer featured in the Wizards of the Coast Candlekeep Mysteries adventure. Uh, he offers the adventure called Shrine, of the Basalt Pilgrim, a delve for characters of level five yeah. with a link in the show notes. So always great art and always great adventures coming from Elven Tower. Awesome. Now on Mastering Dungeons, we are going to talk about our main topic, which is chapter eight of the fifth edition player's handbook, which is all about adventuring. 
We are going to break it down, talk about its design, talk about its relevance to the RPG D&D and what we might see going forward with one D&D slash 6E. So when I got really excited when I saw that this was the next chapter up, because this chapter covers the basics of adventuring life from the mechanics of movement to the complexities of social interaction. The rules for resting are also in this chapter, along with a discussion of the activities your character might pursue between adventures. And while most people are going to be focused on, you know, what can my characters do and what are the spells and what are the magic items? Mm -hmm. For me, this is the most important chapter in the book because it talks about how the game is supposed to work. One of the magical things about games is that the game is supposed to tell you what's important in it and allow you to then make your decisions to make the game flow. So this chapter is about what is going to be important. So does it do that (laughs) is the question. (laughs) And the answer is sort of. Sort of, kind of, or should it even be here? Yeah, but, but uh, just, is, I think it's that, interesting, Sean, to pause and, and say, yeah, like really, it's like, you know, chapter one is making your character, what a, what the steps are, then it's races, classes, personality, equipment, customization options, ability scores. That got a little bit into how you play, but now it's really the first time that we're saying how the larger game should operate. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know that it does what I want it to do. We'll get into the details of that. But but like you said, I think this can be the yeah. most important or should be the most important chapter in the book in that it should almost set the stage to really let you know, here's what gameplay is like. And I think this chapter gets lost in between two things. What should be the in the DMG and what should be in a player's handbook? And should I cover mm-hmm. sort of basic rules of play like jumping and larger patterns of play, which it seems to fumble a bit, I think. Right, right. This is this is the chapter where if you're going to tell the if you're going to have it in the player's handbook, tell the players what the game is about and how it flows. Yeah. So it starts this chapter starts to do that. It says, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, it talks about the natural rhythm of D&D. One, the DM describes the environment. Yes, the environment or the situation, we'll we'll say. Then two, the players describe what they want to do based on the description that the DM gave. And then three, the DM narrates the results of their actions. That is totally true. Those three things. We're done. Let's go home. Good night, everybody. We have a role-playing game. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so that 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 actually I'm I'm good with that. That does mm-hmm. a good job of of taking the highest level 1000 foot view of what the D&D game is. However, there are 100 variations of that. Mm-hmm. And not only are there 100 variations of that, but the game itself doesn't really know what it is. And I think that's mm. that's something I come back to all the time, right? Mm. The game wants to be perfect or not perfect, but it wants to satisfy storytelling, role-playing play where you don't even need to roll a die. 
the DM describes something, you tell what your character does, and the DM says, well, okay, because you said that, this NPC says this back. Okay, mm -hmm. that works there. Some players want just rolling the dice and, and attacking things and pure mechanical play. And this sort of does that, right? It tells the DM says, there's a ogre in front of you. The player says, I hit it with my sword. Mm -hmm. Now there's dice rolling and stuff. But then based on that die rolling, the DM says, what happens? So it fits very generically into completely opposite styles of play. But it doesn't really give you, uh, even as a player, what is going to happen when you sit down to play. Yeah, what's a game like? And so I, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I enjoy the generic. I, I like how that's done. It's mi it's missing some things. Now, some of the things it's missing can be handled in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. But... For me, players, like I said at the start of this, the play, players want to know the rules of the game mm -hmm. and how to play it. They want the game to tell them these things because that's why we play games, to understand the rules and then to use those rules to get a certain outcome. And this doesn't go far enough to tell the players what's going to happen. Now, certain types of players will be totally fine to have the DM be the one that fills in these blanks, but lots of players aren't. Uh, so, you know what came to mind? It needs to, me? to be, I think, a little more. The Monster mm -hmm. Manual of all places. I I kind of like what it does better in its introduction than the, what's here. So, the Monster Manual has this. You probably forget about it, but this introductory section where it talks about statistics and things like that, but it also has this section, where do monsters dwell? And it talks about dungeons, the underdark, the wilderness, towns and cities, underwater, the planes of existence. And for each of them, gives you a paragraph of what this is like, and then lists concepts, right? So dungeons, Im images of dark cells with iron bars and shackles spring to mind, but in D&D, &D, the word dungeon takes a broader meaning to include any enclosed monster infested location most are sprawling underground complexes here are a few examples ruined wizard's tower atop a lonely hill riddled with goblin infested tunnels and on and on right and then it does that for the underdark and all these mm -hmm. other categories and i feel like there's a missing piece here where, where you kind of give me this really broad three you know dm describes players say uh, dm narrates the result and then the next section is like here's how to measure time like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. Give me that next to help me understand what play will be like. And I, I think it's honestly the monster manual right. that does it, but it's trying to speak to DMs. But that to me is the piece that's missing here. Yeah. And maybe even a piece to go off of some discussions that have happened on the Alexandrian and other websites. You know, what is the type of play to be expected in a dungeon? What is the type of play to travel mm -hmm. overland? What can I sort of expect? What's it like to be in an urban environment, exploring a city, how to think about these things and how really importantly to the benefit of the DM and the whole play group is how do I do that well as a player? How do I make it fun for the whole group? Um, you know, help me understand what's mm -hmm. coming from the dungeon master. Help me understand what's coming from the adventure and how I can be a part of that and maximize the fun for everybody. And that's not here at all. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. And, and and some of it can be in the Dungeon Master's Guide, mm -hmm. uh, I think. 
but there there is more that the player needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I I was trying to think what are some missing steps here. Well, the biggest missing step is the die rolling, mm-hmm. right? The players decide what they want to do. It doesn't even mention die rolling. So as a player, if I don't know anything about D and D and I read this, I'm like, okay, well, I have all these things. What what does any of the character mm-hmm. creation that I just did? What does that mean? And it really yeah. doesn't go into that. You're right. And yeah, what the DM's role in it. <laughs> right. And then what goes with rolling dice? What challenge ratings or or uh, uh, difficulty class, right? Mm-hmm. Those things that you come to understand DMs yeah. can make that up in some cases. In some cases, it's a set number. Uh, so yeah. some missing steps that I would love to hear, hear, hear uh, used in this section of this book is something like the dm describes the environment a dm may ask you to make up parts of the environment it, mm-hmm. a dm may ask you to use your imagination to help shape the environment in small or possibly large ways may mm-hmm. ask you to name the tavern that you're about to go into may ask you to create an npc that you're attached to um, so you can also help create the environment yeah. or your questions may i think prompt that's important DM. for to, to make things up, right? Like, like to improvise, to add, to enhance the experience. So be a part of that, like create things, right. ask, you know, can I, does someone yep. in, in this place look untrustworthy, you know, like, like they'd be a, a criminal or something like that, that I can go talk to them. Right. I'm looking for that kind of thing. And then the DM may add that and that's okay. That's part of the experience. Right. right? Expect that. Yep. And having the players, especially new players, know that they can ask questions mm-hmm. is hugely important because how many times have you pl- ran for new players at a game store or at a convention where you describe the environment and you stop and you look at them and they just look at back at you <laughs> and expect you to just keep talking because they don't know what to do. So to, to have players understand immediately, ask questions mm-hmm. because that will not only give you more information to know what your actions will be based on, but it may spawn some uh, insight into in the DM in the situation that they're providing for you. Yeah. Uh, I would love to have something say, DMs, also remember to describe the all the important things that the players need to know. Don't leave anything important out or if even if it's going to be important later, describe it now so there's some foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want that to be right here in in the base hmm. lowest level rules of tell me that. Uh, anything else that came to mind that you would? Uh... No, I think that's a pretty good capture. Um, yeah, it, it was it was very surprising to me to go back and read this, and and just hit that next block being called time and go, wait, <laughs> we just skipped a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not that, um, it's not that time isn't important mm-hmm. and they do, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that this that's described is important for players to know. It's just there, there a lot is being left out there. Yeah. So what do they say about time? Well, they break down what a round is, what a minute is, what an hour is, what a day is, and how you switch back and forth between those 
during an adventure. When you're in combat, you're going to break things down into six second rounds. When you're in a dungeon and you're exploring, you might break it down into minutes. While you're traveling overland, you might break it down into hours. When you're resting between adventures, you might break it down by days. And being able to move back and forth between those is an important skill as a DM that sometimes takes a little bit of time to learn. Sometimes you may be tempted to stay in six second rounds and the game slows way down to the point where people are getting bored because all they're doing is moving through the dungeon, but you're making them count on every square as they move. Uh, so talking about more about that uh, moving back and forth between different modes of time, I think would have been a little bit helpful here yeah. to cover some of the pitfalls that people have when they when they're playing or when they're running a game. Yeah. Uh, and next they talk about movement. Uh, so we've already talked about speed in previous chapters with the speed that different races have. And so this is more talking about traveling overland. They go right mm -hmm. from speed to travel pace. So this is really the first time that we're getting exploration rules described to us yeah and it goes right to there are three types of pace as you're traveling overland and it gives some very generic uh, benefits and drawbacks for each type there's normal there's you know fast and then there's slow if you're traveling at a slow pace you can stealth which you can't do if you're traveling at normal or fast, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And if you're traveling fast, you have a minus five to your passive perception checks as you travel. And this is, for me, this is, it's it's important information, um, assuming that you're going to run the game the way that this game is telling you it should be run. But the game doesn't do a good job of running it as it's telling you that it needs to be run. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, go ahead. And it intersects with the DMG rules for exploration. And, and we did quite some time ago, um, maybe I'll add a, a link in these show notes, mm -hmm. some uh, episodes on breaking down the rules of exploration because they are super confusing because there's information here that isn't in the DMG, information in the DMG that isn't here. Mm -hmm. And then there's some hints that appear in things like Tomb of Annihilation that kind of clarify and, and you kind of need to look at all of it and then really sit down with like a pad of paper and resort it all to figure out what the rules are which we did on those episodes um and it's really confusing because it's it's almost written as if this is super clear and matter of fact and 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 so obvious but it isn't and in fact not only is it not obvious you don't see this get used much you know I think, for, right. sure, Tomb of Annihilation, you know, you, you hex crawl across these hexes in a big open area. And, and so in that sense, that does show up. But, you know, when is the last time that your DM really told you or an adventure told you, OK, you know, decide their travel pace, decide their roles, you know, and, and then use the yeah. fact that this minus five passive perception happens. You know, instead, what's likely is you're traveling. And then there's like an encounter that you assume to suddenly drop out of travel speed. And, you know, you would describe the glade they come across and you would ask them to make a perception check. 
not at minus five, just because right. now you're in this scene, right? So I really find exactly. it so fascinating that this is written the way it is in the player's handbook because it's it almost mm-hmm. it, to me it it doesn't make sense. I don't, as a new player, know what this was all telling me to do. And I need the DM's help. And the DM, when they look at their rules, are not going to find much use. And if you look at the adventures, it's not there either. <laughs> right. And and the question then is, well, I've heard people say, well, it's because you know exploration's no fun. It's because we want to get to the good part of the game. But if there's no good part of exploration right. in the rules itself or if the game doesn't say here's how you can run a really fun exploration situation game uh then no one of course is going to think it's fun because it's just bad right from the start and one of the ways you know that this doesn't come up is because there are no spells class features or almost no class features spells things like that that play with this aspect of the game right nobody is using it enough to merit it and the game itself isn't linking back into it right it's just Mm -hmm. it's like these rules just exist here and and i think what happened if i had to guess is you know there had been an unearthed arcana or DD next playtest piece that sort of said hey what about these rules and i think when it came to write this chapter they were like let's put that in there and they did that so here mm-hmm. are these pieces of, you know, rolls and travel pace and stuff, but it's not integrated into anywhere else because it probably happened late in the design. And so I think it ended up being yeah, so different. Did you almost fall over? <laughs> I almost, I almost fell over and almost knocked my mic over at the same time. So <laughs> I had that going for me. Uh, <laughs> so close to being a really amusing clip yeah. we could have used for our show, but yeah. Yes. Well, the, the, yeah. the podcast is still young. It could still happen. <laughs> uh, so fun. Funny story. We were travel. I was running a game. They were traveling, and they said, "You know, how far are we from the next town?" And I said, "You're a half day's ride away." And there are no real. I mean, there there are rules, but no one knows the rules. So I said a half day's ride. I meant four hours because you can ride for eight hours, or you know, eight hours is your normal travel day. Anything beyond that, you're you're asking for. Uh, mm-hmm. checks the person who asked thought i meant 12 hours because a day is 24 hours mm-hmm. so he thought they were 12 hours away from their next town and somebody else thought well a day is 12 hours and a night is 12 hours so half half day's ride is six hours so that's the sort of thing that right i was going by the rules from from this book Th- they're yeah. just going by n- normal day but they're you know what's a day yeah it's that that's how that's how huh. weird travel is in D or how much it's just ignored it's almost like yeah you could run a really fun exploration game but we're not going to tell you how or we're not going to give you rules to do so yeah, and, uh, and how many adventures will just assume that it's nightfall when you arrive there's no travel pace if the travel pace is blah right. then it's you know afternoon versus yeah. evening or you know yeah exactly uh, exactly and and i guess and the question so the the, the yeah. oh, good good ah, you oh i was gonna say that the, the forced march mm. the forced march is is it's it's a cool rule um so if you travel longer than eight hours as soon as you hit hour nine you need to succeed on a dc 10 
plus one for each hour after eight hours that you are traveling. And if you fail that uh, DC 10 constitution saving throw, you get gaining level of exhaustion. So think of it this way. If you travel eight hours and then you travel six more hours. So if you travel 14 hours in a day and you fail each of those constitution saving throws, you die <laughs> at, at the sixth level of exhaustion, right? That's I think I've, I've been on that, that hike. Six it's, levels it's of exhaustion. Hike. <laughs> death. Yes. <laughs> Right. That's just me crossing the kitchen at this point in my life. But yeah, that's yeah. that's the whole other stuff. <laughs> so that so that's the sort of thing that. Right. The, it's it's oh, good. We have rules. And then you think of, about the rule and you're like, I this, keep thinking of jokes about you're this. You're going like to die every, after. Every parent has seen their, their young child, their toddler die this way. Right? It's like, I can't. I'm done. It's five feet. I can't. Yeah. It's just flop over. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. So even the rule that they put in, it's a rule. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's a rule I could follow. And sure, after you know the third failed constitution saving throw, when they're you know realizing they're getting to the point where they can't move if they keep going. Well, technically, after five levels of exhaustion, your movement becomes zero. Mm -hmm. So I guess you would never be have be able to move again. Yeah. Uh, so as you know, it's it's how these rules, even when they sound like, okay, that someone's thought about this, you're not sure if they've really thought about this. Well, the other thing that's funny about uh, this, right? So exhaustion level two is your speed is halved. So right. we're done here, folks. <laughs> like the end of forced march, you failed two, you're yeah. done, right? Like, And which anybody yeah. gaming a system looks at this and goes, you would never force march after your first failure because then you're going to be right. make you, you lose all the right. time you were ever trying to gain right to which you then have to go back and right. say well game designer what's up here like this doesn't work right yeah but the the idea yeah. is cool and, and, and what we want out of it is boy there's some reason like why we've got to get it to town as we've got to get to town as quickly mm -hmm. as possible because something's going to happen right but these rules aren't going to really help. And after a few levels, you know, someone's just going to conjure flying mounts or something like that. And it, and it doesn't matter anyway. So, yeah. So it's like, it's just for a certain part of the game and it's not quite working, unfortunately. So yeah, this is something yeah. I'd want to revise. I think all of travel pace could use a little rework and, and, and mm -hmm. presentation. I'd like to see all of the exploration rules Someone needs to, I think if I were a designer, I'd yep. want to sit down and sit down and, and go, okay, here's what they actually are. Here's how they're used or not used in mm -hmm. adventures. What do we want to change this to for 6E, right? Yeah, exactly. Do we even want what, want it in there? Uh, and if if so, let's let's do the, do the work of making it either a fun game or have it make sense. Yeah. So they, they talk about difficult terrain, obviously, just like in combat, moving over difficult terrain costs you twice uh, your movement. Special movement like climbing, swimming, and crawling. You always, unless you have a climb speed or a swim speed, you're always moving at half speed when you climb or swim. Yeah. You may also have to make checks if there is a slippery surface for climbing or turbulent waters for swimming jumping we've talked about before uh, right now for 5e it sets a static value if you move 10 feet you can jump up to your 
strength score. Mm-hmm. If it's a standing jump, it's halved. So if you have an 18 um, strength, you can jump with a 10 foot lead, 18 feet. Mm-hmm. Well, and then the funniest part was seeing I like the, rolling, but that's the, me. Yeah. Well, seeing the early adventures, yeah. even official ones, uh, present a pit, right. you know, five foot pit as like, ooh, you know, you're going to have yeah. to deal with this. And it's like, well, if your strength is 10, <laughs> I think we're good yeah. here. Like, this you is just, no threat at all yeah. if it's an open pit, right? Like, and, and, and right. so designers had to relearn that. And I haven't seen that problem in, 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 you know, in any recent memory, but the initial ones that people were still trying to figure out how to do it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next, we have activity while traveling. So it tells you what a marching order is. Marching order is something that's been around since first edition days, where as you're traveling over land or even within a dungeon, what formation are you in? How far apart are the characters? Where are they in relation to each other? And they set up this idea of ranks, where if you are in the front, you're the front rank. If you are in the back of the marching order, you're in the back rank. And then everybody else is in the middle rank. And they they set up these ranks like they're very, very important. And then they really never say anything about them. They don't say, yeah. they say, you know, the rank that you're in might be effect, might affect checks you have to make or, or things, but they don't get any more specific than that. And maybe they deal with it in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, and maybe they're just setting up this concept for players to think about. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't check to see if they did. But, you know, normally you would see something like only the people in the front rank can roll for threats that are approaching from the front and only people in the back rank. Yeah, blah, and blah, I blah. think it's but left th- over from, don't... from that same D&D next playtest UA, which was sort of the concept was kind of like in these ranks, you can do or can't do various activities. So I'm searching for mm-hmm. traps or I'm noticing threats. And, and so they say, you know, you need to be in the front front, front rank to be seeing it up front or in the back rank to see someone coming from behind. And they talk about that a little bit, but that was also sort of the idea of like, well, you know, if you're, yeah, you, you, you have to be in certain ranks to do certain activities. It's like, you know, I can see where they're coming at it with the idea of this, but I think it's just, it's all, again, it's all a subsystem that you just don't see used in play. Um, mm-hmm. so. <laughs> yeah. Then they give other activities that you can do while you're traveling. If you're not actively watching for threats, some of the roles you can take are navigate, draw a map, track, and forage. Mm-hmm. So if you are doing one of these things, you cannot make the, you cannot contribute to, I think is the wording they use, contribute to the passive perception checks to see a threat that may be in front of you or approaching you. And, you know, I'm I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. Um, what I want to know then, though, is what happens if you have no navigator? What right. happens if you have no map drawer? Right? Yeah. What happens if you had no tracker? Well, I guess you know, you're, if you're tracking, you're doing so for a reason. Uh, yeah, I take go go the next step and say, let's make this a game. Right? We're playing a game. Let's make this a game. Let's give benefits and drawbacks and consequences and tell me that you know if. If I don't have a navigator, I'm going to get lost. If I don't have a map drawer, 
something. I, I, I need something yeah. to, to make this game a game. And, and all of this is based on the concept of that because you're doing these activities, you can't be doing the default of noticing dangers. So it's like everybody has to choose one role and do it. I don't think that's a fun thing for players. You know, the idea that you're locked down on a certain activity. Um, it's also mm -hmm. not entirely clear whether you can be taking that stealth option and also do these other things. I guess you can. But I just, I don't think it works well. I think these kinds of roles work well if you're doing something like, hey, you're on a ship, so everybody has a station. Then I think roles can be pretty mm -hmm. cool. Um, but just walking around, I would get back to almost the beginning of this chapter and say, hey, a situation comes up. How do you deal with it, right? I don't need a, you know, only the navigator can look at this. Like, hey, you guys are feeling kind of lost. <laughs> Make me a check, you know, like who wants mm -hmm. to try to figure this out with the yeah. map, right? What do you do? I'm going to climb a tree. I'm going to, you know, check the bark for which way the moss grows and that sort of thing, right? Like that's that's the kind of play that I think would be fun and just encourage that instead of this sort of activity, which I think is is just too... It's too foreign, I think, to to the concept of what we want to deal with. Fair enough. Uh, next, they talk about the environment and things that can happen to you in the environment, I guess. <laughs> so this is where we see like rules being shoved at us where it's, yes, it's stuff that could happen while adventuring or things that you use while adventuring. Mm -hmm. um, but you know it's it is as a, as a creator of user manuals it is tough to put things in the right space all the time sure. some things don't fit anywhere so you sort of make a catch all category and at this point adventuring has turned into our uh, the catch all category if if we didn't think it fit somewhere else we're going to put it here so falling falling is 1d6 for every 10 feet you fall to a maximum of 20d6 I have to ask this question. 20d6 averages out to 70 points of damage, of bludgeoning damage, when you hit the ground. Is that high enough? No, Sean, it is not. The maximum needs to be okay. able to kill Thank almost you. anything, I think. So, no. I'm going to go with a yeah. no. Yeah, if you, if you hit the ground at maximum velocity and maxed out at 20d6, it, it just... I don't even like a d6 for, per 10 feet. I would like do a D10 per 10 mm -hmm. feet. I think that was in fourth edition. Fourth edition, I think. Was yeah. it D a D10? Yeah. I think so. Um, or or a D6 per yeah. five feet. You know, I, I I want that to be a little bit more deadly because so many times fifth level characters fall a hundred feet and uh and they just walk away from it. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like they should, but hey, that's just me. I agree uh, with you. Mm -hmm. uh, they talk about suffocating. So a creature can hold its breath for a number of minutes equal to one plus its con modifier to a minimum and a minimum of 30 seconds. So once you run out of breath or you are choking, you can survive a number of rounds equal to your con modifier. After that, the following round, you fall to zero hit points, cannot be stabilized, and you cannot regain hit points until you can breathe again. So you set it zero. So so you're being choked. You you and that is different, I believe, than holding your breath. Right. Uh, but that doesn't say it is. So I've had like monsters that would choke characters, but the character says, Well, I can hold my breath 
for three minutes because I have a con modifier plus two. So I'm just going to sit here and be choked for three minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that's how that rule works. I think choking is different. Well, but then once you fall to zero, uh, you can't be stabilized. So you, I assume you're making death saves because you're at zero. But you're not taking damage. So if you continue rolling death saves, as long as you succeed, you're not you're not going to get three and be stable because you can't. But you're also not dying. Um, so that's kind of weird. And if someone casts a heal on you, it doesn't work because right. you are not able to breathe. So that's uh, uh, well, is that true? You thing. can't you can't gain hit points. No, you can gain hit. It just uh, won't. Oh no! Can't regain hit it points. It falls yeah. to zero. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You can't regain hit points until you're able to breathe. So I guess yeah. So you have to be brought out of the suffocating, whether it's liquid or being choked or whatever, mm -hmm. before. Until then, all your death saves would just be uh, a pass, but not contributing towards the three. You need to be stable, and a twenty exactly. would do would be just disappointing. And and <laughs> so yeah, that's not great. <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't recommend suffocating yep no, it, um right. it is and now there's very few things in the game that do that but yeah yeah go ahead it, it is interesting rule this was also super interesting and, and i think actually worse in fourth edition um you'd have these underwater adventures right and and the way i think of it is like okay let's say you have to go through an underwater corridor to come up to the other side is that hard, right? And in movies, we're always told how hard it is, you know, and, and someone holds their breath for about 30 minutes of film time. But <laughs> but, but the idea is that it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I think of this, okay, like, you know, I'm going to swim to the other side of the, you know, to, the, to, the, to get out of this tunnel that's waterlogged. Well, I can hold my breath for one plus my con modifier minutes, minimum of 30 seconds. Well, you know, maybe, okay might work well what happens if i don't well now i can survive a number of rounds equals my con modifier oh well that's forever you know like the combination of those two things means i don't really know like anything at all in that sort of you know go through the tunnel is just you're going to make it right. unless something's really holding you back for many rounds and right. and then we just get to the obvious of like well you can't just explore a whole underwater dam uh, underwater place without breathing sure like that's not going to happen but anything short it's almost like there's no variability here right it, it's you can get longer than a combat you can survive holding your breath is almost what mm -hmm. these, these rules to me say and I don't know that I want them to say that yeah yeah it, it is that is I could see one combat right to have that excitement of yeah. You're, you're, yeah, maybe. you know, okay. most combats, if you're doing all right, an average difficulty over in three, four rounds mm -hmm. at the most. Um, so that's yeah, 24 it's, seconds. So you're not even into your out of breath then. Right. <laughs> so you could probably do two combats. Most characters could probably do two combats, if not three in a row without right. being out of breath. And that's a little too high, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you you can make an interesting thing by like having a combat and also making characters make athletics checks because the water's turbulent yeah. and may need to be helped through. Um, so so that's an that's an interesting thing to add. But yeah, yeah, uh, vision and light. So uh, we finally 
how do we see? <laughs> well, you can't see without light. Um, they, we get the definition of lightly obscured and heavily obscured. Lightly obscured means you have disadvantage on perception checks, and that's dim light, patchy fog, or light foliage. And then heavily obscured, you cannot see or be seen. Uh, if you are heavily obscured, people think creatures have disadvantage to attack you. But if you are in heavily obscured areas, you have disadvantage to attack other creatures. Um, another thing that people often forget but has been pointed out recently is that dark vision lets you see if you are in darkness as if it were dim light. So therefore, you have disadvantage to perception checks if you are using your dark vision in complete darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is yeah, get, it's easy oh, to forget that there's also the the you you see um, in shades of gray, which can be an issue, um, but that's very hard to adjudicate for DMs. The other thing that I notice about this, when it talks about blind sight, dark vision, true sight, it's it's fine that it defines it. You know, again, it's trying to shove in some encyclopedic stuff here, but I would like this to be more like some of the previous edition games where we've seen that they'll say. And here's what cover looks like, because we often want to com <clears throat> compare those two together. <clears throat> we yeah. want to say, what is cover versus what is obscurement? You know, what's vision versus what, what's the, the darkness type thing? Smoke effect versus I'm behind a wall or something like that. And, and those rules aren't here and we don't know where to look them up. And that to me is a problem with this section. Right. Yeah. And then hiding is often in, in a, even in a different section yes. so you have to go to three different places to find yeah the rules for that yeah good point uh in the environment we also get food and water uh entries but it's really more like hey you should probably have food and water while you adventure and then there's the interacting with objects section which is it's a it's it's the game's way of telling you that you can't um you can't hurt objects with poison or psychic damage, uh, but you can hurt them in other ways. And objects are different than creatures. And, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty yeah. limited, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we get social interaction uh, talk, which, uh, which again, sort of doesn't tell you how the game actually runs. It gives you, it says, well, you can role play just like if you were an actor in a movie. And then sometimes ability checks will be called for while you're doing that acting. But it it doesn't tackle that thorny problem of, you know, you're the most eloquent person, you make the perfect argument, but then your ability check ends up being a, a roll of one. Um, so what do you do in situations like that? It It doesn't suss those out to the degree that I would like to see them so mm -hmm. players understand how the game normally runs. Yeah, I and mean, I feel like this whole section could benefit from some of that old AD&D type um, or even basic where they'll, they would have the examples of play in it, right? That are like, you know, DM mm -hmm. says, Sue says, Bob says, right? As cheesy yeah. as those can be, like they do help you understand what the game should be like. And I recall as a new player reading those kinds of things and going, oh, okay, okay. That's that's what could happen here, right? Um, and I, I, I kind of would have liked that here. There's a little bit of this where they try to say, you know, here's what this player called Chris says when role playing Tordek. Um, 
but seeing that really broken down to examples of play like hey we're going across the wilderness we're in a dungeon we're uh, trying to haggle for some product or let someone you know get in through this past the guards right having those little scenarios be broken up into more discrete chunks that would let us feel out that play and know what the players mm -hmm. and the dms are supposed to do in those kinds of situations might be a little more helpful here Next is resting, which is probably, for me, the most important thing in all the game. And the players are let know that you at, must rest at least an hour for a short rest and at least eight hours, sleeping at least six, and then doing light activity for two when you take a long rest. When you take a short rest, you... I don't even know if they say you get back certain abilities at a short rest. So they, they say they you don't... can use hit dice... Yeah, I think because the idea is that it's those abilities themselves that say that, right? Right, right. But yeah. that's sort of important to know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, as, as part of the game. And I think they don't go into any more detail, right? Here is where you say D&D &D can be run as a resource management game. And think about movies where the... The, uh, yeah. the, you know, the good guy runs out of bullets and so now he's down to, or, right, the, the, uh, the barbarian in the sword and sorcery movie has, is all cut up and is on her last legs and, right. and just doesn't say that. And I think it's because they want D&D &D to be everything to everyone and they don't want to step on DM's toes to say these things and they don't want players to assume something that the DM might not be down with. And it's just so hard to make a good to great game when you try to have it do everything. It's possible as well that when they wrote this section, they weren't exactly sure what to say about it because D&D Next, the, the prequel to, to 5e, the playtest version of it, it had, um, I think, a 10-minute short rest mm -hmm. for most yeah. of its lifetime. And then the last packet... I remember it came out right before Vault of the Draculich went in, into stores to be played. All of a sudden became an hour. And so, you know, we had written this adventure thinking like, well, you know, some people take some 10 minute rest. That's fine. And then yeah. it was like, well, short rest or an hour, like an hour. That won't work. So I guess you guys can't take short rests. And so it may have been that they just really weren't sure what to say about it. They'd made the decision that 10 minutes was too short, you know, that that would be too abused. So it needed to be longer, but they maybe weren't sure what to to say about it other than just this basic, you know, spend your hit dice. Yeah. And... Yep. and that's why the game needs to tell you as the DM and as the player what the expectations are for an adventuring day. Yeah. Are yes. you expected to take one, two, three more short rests? Are you expected to take no short rests? Yeah. Are you right? And how should an adventure handle time? Not yeah. what is time, but how should an adventure be set up to make the most dramatic use of the passage of time? Um, and we we aren't told any of that, at least here. So the players don't have an understanding of what's yeah. expected of them. So many times I've been running a game where it's like, the, okay, the players need a short rest. They're running low on their resources. They need more hit points. They need a short rest here but they're so scared that they're going to run out of time for some reason that they're not going to take that hour rest. Right. Um, they and don't. Yeah. So, and which is a really yeah. interesting thing to think about how often 
a play group does not know whether they can stop to rest. And that, that should right. be something that they should really understand because this mechanic of an hour for resting just needs to be woven into life. And similarly, a long rest, whether they can spend the whole night and then, you know, get there. Like, yes, you've got to go stop the bandits, but they're not coming for five days, right? Do we know that? Do we have any feel for it? Like, you know, are we going to ride, are we going to ride all night, arrive in town and then have them say like, yep, no bandits here yet. And then two days later, bandits show up, right? Like just, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, th- this resting, this resource management part of the game is so vital to the game of what the game is or what the game says it is or what the game thinks it is or what the game is supposed to be but really isn't. Uh, you know, all of those things hinge on these short rest, long rest, resource allocation questions. And we get the basics here, but we don't get any any more that I would really like the game to tell me um, how to play it. Yeah. And last but not least, between adventures. So the adventuring chapter is now telling us what to do between adventures, which I guess is is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to spend uh, some lifestyle expenses if we're going to not be adventuring and be in town for several days. And we can do some downtime, downtime activities. Um, a few activities are given, such as recuperating, which... I was like, isn't that, oh, this is something like if you're dealing with poison or disease. Okay, mm-hmm. I get that. Practicing a profession, crafting, researching, training. Um, you know, those are the basic ones that we're, we're given in this chapter. What are your thoughts, Teos? It, it's interesting that these, you know, we get a different list than the DMG. So again, you have to sort of look in both places to get the full picture as, as a DM. Um, and... The idea is that these are activities that the players would initiate, and I, I appreciate that, but I almost feel like that what I'd rather see here is frame to the player, this thing of downtime exists. You can do things around the adventure in these resting periods. You cleared out the cultist temple. Whatever questions came up, you could research them, right? Before you travel through the wilderness, you could do something to prepare for it, right? encourage that kind of thinking and then say the dm has rules for this in what's called downtime right and here's how that tends to play out so that players would naturally want to do that rather than just look at this small menu and go do i want to pick one of these no and and maybe just even pass it by but to really state that this should be what play should be like right you should think about the things you want to do in between those obvious play moments yeah and this goes back to the rest thing. It's like training. It says you training lasts for 250 days and costs one gold piece per day. Uh, after you spend the time and money, you gain a new proficiency with a language or a tool. And I'm like, how many players are going to say, okay, I know we just, I know we just handled, you know, the bandit cave. I'm going to take uh, almost a year and I'm going to learn how to play the flute. Right. Uh, everybody cool with that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, why? Right. Yeah. It it needs right. It it needs to be told not only that you can do these downtime activities, but I think is what what you're saying is what are the benefits of these things? What do I get, and how do I make this fit into the overall story that this this campaign I'm running or playing in is telling? Well, and I think downtime in this incarnation, when it first was in the player's handbook in the DM, DMG, 
didn't know what that rule should really be about. It was just sort of, hey, sometimes there are these gaps between adventures. And so maybe it's anything um, like it's, you know, I want to build a keep towards the end of my career. That's in the DMG or I want to learn a language. Here's how I can do that. And it takes forever. But what DMG, what Downtime has, has given to the game, especially with Xanathars that really rewrote it. And then, you know, you and I worked on it with Acquisitions Incorporated, which has a whole bunch of downtime activities. It really became a nice part of play where it can give all of this player ingenuity. It can, it can give all of this player leadership to them where the characters can choose to do things, right? You know, we met that NPC, that NPC is really weak. I want to train them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we rescued this person. I want to get them home or uh, I want to get them a job at this place. Hey, you know, we're, we've been working with these nobles and they're pretty tough to work with. I want to try to recruit an ally within the nobility. Mm-hmm. I want to join the thieves guild and I want to wait, you know, start doing that um, through downtime. And those are really neat ideas that make play actually really cool when it happens. Mm-hmm. And, and often DMs are like, well, I don't know how I would handle that. Well, this is how you handle mm-hmm. it. But it starts right. with saying that it's not a menu of four things. It's a whole way that you play, right? Your, your game is not just dungeon A, dungeon B, and the travel in between. It's also the, hey, while we're waiting to go out to the next dungeon, here are the things we can initiate and start working on. And that can be really fun play. Yep. And if you want to know what Teos and I think that you can do with downtime in an adventure, I suggest you check out the Acquisitions Incorporated hardcover, which has a very robust and story focused downtime section. Yeah. Each chapter has all these downtime ideas and yeah, it worked really well with, with the games I ran. So that is chapter eight, Teos. Is there anything that you wanted to add about chapter eight? Or do you yeah. think we have ventured our way forth through it well enough? Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Next time we're going to be talking about chapter nine, combat, which may or may not have anything to do with d and I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that you never hear of that pillar. Nope. So thank you so much out there for listen, listening. And thank you to our patrons. Thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters, and a special shout out to our Master of Realms and Master of the Multiverse patrons. You can become a patron of the show and get access to our show notes with links and other thoughts, as well as some exclusive content that we record from time to time. Mm-hmm. I just did a recording that Mayor, if Teos thinks it's good enough, will go up. Um, what yeah, did I even talk this week. about in that? All right. There's something I'm trying to remember. I did it yesterday in about 10 minutes and I'm trying to remember what I talked about, but Hey, you know how it is. Uh, So our master of the realms uh, there are listed on our show notes. Thank you. And our masters of the multiverse get a special shout out for Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, evil, John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com. Ben F., Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Eric Mengi, Nayanakra, Falcon Neal, Drago Russo, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville of the Planagia RPG setting, Joe Tyler, and Graham Ward. So thank you, patrons, and thank you, listeners. Um, if you like the show, please consider 
consider supporting the Patreon at patreon.com slash slash mastering D&D. Teos, where is all your fine thoughts on this interweb stuff? Uh, I just released a second part to the Success in RPGs videos on YouTube that says uh, how I go about creating an adventure, how I design a new RPG project, and how I sort of start the outline, outlining and brainstorming process. So uh, part two is out this week. Uh, you can find me on the YouTubes and everything through my main website, alphastream.org. I'm also somewhat still on Twitter at alphastream. And alpha stream on dice.camp on Mastodon, where I'm trying to spend more of my time. Sean, where are you hiding? I am hiding on Twitter for the moment at Sean Merwin. The podcast is also hiding on Twitter at Mastering DD. Uh, you can join our community and ask questions on Patreon. You can also leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos. Now that we have made it through our adventuring day, what are we going to do now? Mm, let's kill all our monsters by suffocating them. Takes a while. It's going to take a bit of time, but but boy, super effective. The screams. <laughs> no. Oh, wait, can they? I, no. We need rules for that. I don't know. <laughs>